0: death, corruption, and a lack of the equipment necessary to stay alive. Those were perhaps the three most constant forces in Ed Calderon's law enforcement career in Mexico, besides the love he felt for his fellow countrymen. These invisible enemies would reveal truths to him that he has used for his own survival throughout his career. Truths that have also helped him in his quest to prepare others for situations he hopes they never have to go through. Fighting a seemingly endless war with cartels that take pride in their gruesome violence has left imprints on his mind that do more harm than good. Looking back, even he admits that there were red flags from the very beginning of his journey to become the sneak reaper. A journey that began with a cycle of depression following the September 11 attacks, that claimed 2,977 innocent souls in New York City, Washington D.C., and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you, and the people, and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Ed's plans to become a doctor were upended as Mexico's economy suffered alongside millions of Americans, forcing him to sell his textbooks, abandon the future plans inspired by his mother, the healer, and find a new life. And after responding to a cryptic job posting, he found himself trapped in a new cycle of suffering. Well, the, the job posting basically
1: said that they needed unmarried young men uh, to you know join this experimental new police force. Uh, they wanted you know people that had some sort of uh, some sort of education. Uh, they wanted uh, if you if you got stuck uh, during your career, or college uh, education, or university education, uh, that's who, that's who they were looking for. They were looking for bilingual people. Uh, so I thought it was more going to be like a, related to be an analyst or uh, investigation or intelligence or something along those lines. I didn't envision myself going going off to uh, paramilitary training, which is what it was. But uh, it was a job offering, you know. Uh, the, the The salary that they uh, shared there was pretty interesting, specifically for a down and out uh, unemployed. A young man i uh you know I went in there and did all the exams I thought I wasn't going to get in i i I felt out of place there you know when I saw the other people kind of going through the recruitment process i I felt out of place you know culturally there were kind of different uh types of people there mm-hmm. um, so I just went through all the hoops and eventually I just got called in It was an odd odd ad in the newspaper with a bunch of young faces in uniform and uh you know i, I I don't know if people can get this reference, but uh, the parody, that uh, movie Starship Troopers where, you know, I'm doing my part, you know, see these fake commercials uh, for, the, uh, for the service. That's kind of like the in my head, that's what's, what that was. They promised all these amazing things like a credit for your house and stable, secure job, um, medical insurance, all this stuff, which is in Mexico, it's pretty hard to get. Uh, and, uh, you know, went through the whole process and eventually found myself in a, a refurbished prison. That was the Academy, <laughs> a refurbished prison. And I found myself sitting in a chair, getting, uh, my head cleanly shaven. Right. And, uh, it was a power. Para- it was a paramilitary Academy, which I didn't kind of figure out till I was there. I was in way over my head when I was when I arrived there, it was all marching from one point to another, forced marches. Uh, they were trying to haze us into quitting. So they had this whole open door policy you know, the door's open, you're here because you want to be. All of us were being uh, investigated. All of us got FBI background checks. All of us went through polygraph exams and interviews. They went to visit our houses. They went to talk to our neighbors. All this, all of these processes. So you would be in there marching around, and they would pull people out from the uh, from the class that uh, later on turned out had some sort of cartel affiliation. That were being sponsored by a cartel group to infiltrate, or you know, they turned out to have some weird background uh, history. You know, all the people that were in charge of our training were all members of the GAFE. Uh, the GAF is uh, Mexican army special forces group. Uh, the ones that... Uh, the ones where the Zeta cartel came from. So, <laughs> these were the guys that were in charge of our training. You know, they, they said in Spanish, you know, we have nothing but bread and... Um, phallic uh, <laughs> symbol to eat. And guess what? The bread ran out a few months ago. So that's all you're gonna get is the ladder, right? It was brutal training, psychologically brutal training, physically brutal training. A lot of people were broken in that training, um, and uh, somehow I you know, made it through. A few of us made it through, a lot of people uh, got kicked out. Um, got to shoot a pistol probably 20 times, got to shoot a shotgun probably four times. You know, just, just a few rounds out of uh, some of the uh, guns and stuff like that, and that was enough for them to to realize we were ready to go out there and do law enforcement work. Um, got to learn on a Beretta ninety two FS pistol. Uh, people might know what that is. And when I get out, got out, they, I got handed over a Glock, which is a completely different handgun, which I didn't even know how to you know operate properly uh, when I got it. Uh, we were basically armed, and we wrote our uh, we wrote our uh, our uh, last will and testament type uh, situation. Uh, we signed our contract and got uh, orders, and everybody was kind of spread out, uh, right out. Right the next day, we were, we were working. I was placed immediately with an older group of people, a little, uh, group that was already on the job for about three years. Um, and there was a few older guys on there that were, had probably 15 years of experience behind them already. And, uh, you know, I got handed a gun and a rifle and, you know, told us just go with these people and they're, they're going to tell you what to do. We were hanging out with the, uh, military back then and basically just, uh, nightly raids on different houses and places where people were suspected of storing, you know, drugs or cartel safe houses or intercepting convoys that were suspicious, uh, that type of stuff. I mean, right off the bat, I was, I was, you know, neck deep into some weird experiences out there.
0: Ed was already on the front line of what was effectively a ground war with the cartels when then-President Felipe Calderon took things to a new level. He mobilized some 4,000 troops to his home state of Michoacan, where hundreds of innocent people had been killed in drug-related violence. It was the opening battle in a now nationwide conflict that has since claimed anywhere from 150,000 to more than 200,000 lives to this day and counting.
1: I mean, we were probably two, two, almost three years in. Uh, By the time he officially declared the war on the cartels, it was, I I, I don't know, Uh, I think uh, we were already working uh, in a way. There was already kind of efforts being put forth, uh, but there wasn't a lot of uh, momentum behind us. You know, we didn't have, we didn't have a a lot of support to do the work that we were doing. Uh, All of a sudden, you know, we watch the news and it basically goes on there and says we're going to take the military out of their barracks and we're going to use them as a uh, policing force uh to try and fight the cartels Los hechos de criminalidad no deben quedar impunes. the war on drugs that he declared worked differently in different parts of the country because it worked on the principle of cooperation at all levels uh, the problem was that in some parts of the country the state government and the local government was contrary Politically to the federal government. So it was in their best interest not to cooperate. Or the state government was sponsored by one cartel and uh, they didn't want the federal government coming in there and messing that up. So there was a lot of that uh, across the country. There's a lot of static across the country. And um, he basically, in a lot of ways, said, you know, the gloves are off was the sentiment with a lot of the people that I used to that I used to work with. All of a sudden, all of us got, uh, you know, upgrades and equipment and armored vehicles. And uh, we, would, uh, we would ride with uh, with the uh, Army SF units because we had arresting powers and they didn't. So we would be added on or tacked on to some of the stuff that they were doing. Um, we, would, uh, we would act as guides to federal groups that would come in to some of the regions that we had more experience in than they did. Uh, we got access to training, more training uh, on the US side. You know, some of us actually went to Coronado and, and got to experience some training uh, from uh, people that were former uh, Naval Special Warfare uh, operators. So we got a lot of, I mean, a lot of things changed. A lot more effort was placed into professionalizing, certifying, and keeping people honest. There was an office created called the C3 Office, which is basically. Their sole purpose was to put every single member of the group that I worked with with uh, through constant filters, uh, drug uh, testing, psychological evaluations, a financial uh, investigation. Everybody was under a microscope and it was a hassle and stressful for some. But for me, it was peace of mind because I knew everybody that I was working with was under the same scrutiny as I was. So I had peace of mind as far as the people that I was working with. Um, there was some successes to his efforts. I mean, he recently came out with his autobiography, and he actually talks about some of the successes uh, ex- the ex- successes he had fighting that war in places like Baja, which is where I had most of my experience in. Uh, but it really depended on the state government the local government, and the federal government all working in unison against uh, against some of these criminal threats. That's what the main key of the success was. Now, Tijuana was the uh, most dangerous uh, city in the world when we first started kind of pushing some of the that federal counter cartel policy that Calderon kind of started uh, pushing throughout the country and by the time we were done it was not on the list as the it was it was not even on the top 40 list you know things actually went down uh, as far as violence goes um it did last though <laughs> uh, mexico suffers from a cycle of amnesia every 6 years new president comes in and throws everything the other past president did into the garbage and starts uh, from zero so uh, all of those uh, background checks and, and all of those polygraph exams that we would get uh, were declared unconstitutional and were de- declared inadmissible as far as a uh, uh, just cause to fire somebody from, uh, from some of the offices that I worked in. So a lot of the guys that were fired for corruption charges or were fired because they failed a, 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 a confidence exam or a polygraph, a lot of them were actually hired back. <laughs> after this whole after it was working a lot of them were hired back because it was declared a non-constitutional uh, thing to be put through so all of a sudden I'm standing in an office with uh, four guys that I know for a fact are on the uh law cartels payroll and they're my new bosses you know <laughs> it's surreal uh, but that's kind of the nature of the things that happen down there
0: We'll return right after this brief break. Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast, featuring common ground, in depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his All Star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Corruption between the cartels in Mexico and some law enforcement or even government officials is something Ed says he experienced firsthand. Thanks in part to some advice he received from his father, who he calls the sensible one of his parents. Ed says he never accepted any offers for what's known as plata o plomo, meaning a bribe or death. It literally translates to silver or lead. And it's a sinister force that Ed says was a part of life from the beginning to the end of his career in Mexico. And it likely persists in his absence.
1: It's assumed that once you go into law enforcement, you're on the take. That's like the main thing. Culturally, corruption is rampant all in every single police force out there. And when I say corruption, I mean, uh, here's money to look the other way. Uh, here's money so you don't come after our guys. You go after the guys of the other cartel group um, or basically extorting people. Because you're a you're a law enforcement agent, and you can go out there, you're armed, and you can extort money out of people. That was very prevalent, uh, even in the offices that I worked in uh, when I came into it. Human rights groups charge the military and police have at times also crossed the line. It's a cultural thing. It's uh you know one of the reasons why things don't get better in Mexico is because how of how segmented and divided the uh, the government structure is when i first started in one of the the places that i worked in the local police worked for one cartel the state police worked for the other cartel and the federal police would play both sides so, so nobody nobody could you know make heads or tails of anything um one of the traditionally more less corrupt uh, groups out there was the military but even then you know, you you would see members of the mil- the Mexican military be on the take or inf- or favor a certain cartel over another. So everybody had a side to play, right? So when I got in there, uh, one of the first things that I was told was to uh, not question anything if I saw it, and to report anything that I thought shouldn't be. It shouldn't it shouldn't be happening to my superior uh, which I quickly realized was a trap you know because if you did that that means you're a snitch and that means they or you're either gonna be you know killed by one of the members of your own group uh, for being a rat you're gonna be ostracized and placed in an office setting and or they're gonna find a way to burn you right so I just basically for the for the first few years I just shut my mouth and just went. Uh, went to work, and you know, there there was there was offers. A lot of people got offers, and I just basically said, you know what? I'm fine. I'm perfectly. Uh, I'm perfectly at peace with whatever I get as a as a as a wage, a living wage. I don't have a lot of expenditures. I'm not married. I don't have a kid. I live by myself. I'm fine. I like living. I like breathing. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. And. Um, a lot of people that I work with uh, were the same way. They just didn't partake in it because they realize it's uh, it's uh, it's basically a, it's once you once you get into somebody's pocket like that, it's a uh, it's a matter of time before you get sold out, you get found out, or you get arrested, or you get killed. It was that simple. If you're on the take, somebody's going to get rid of you in, in one way, shape, or form. Um. So one of the ways that I kind of tried to extract myself from it. Uh, was when eventually uh, uh, there was a guy, uh, a lieutenant colonel, that went, uh, that that was brought in to uh, work as director of the unit that I was in. Drug cartel killings have more than doubled this year, says Mexico's attorney general. Now it's at a record 5,400 murders. In Tijuana alone, nearly 50 murders last week, forcing Mayor Jorge Ramos to take action. He removed the city's so called anti corruption police chief after just a year on the job, replacing him with an army colonel, Julian Lezaola. The army is widely regarded as the least corrupt security force. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lezaola, who uh, was a very, very influential figure in my life, um, he came in and he had a zero corruption policy. Uh, so when he came into the, in, into the, uh, Into the work environment, we basically saw him as a refuge or a haven. So a lot of us that were there to actually work, you know, kind of rallied around. Um, uh, But there's not a lot of there's not a lot of those types of people out there, sadly. And it's not it's not rewarded. Nobody ever gave me a pat on the back, or I never got any bonus or reward for not being on the take or. Uh, for doing my job and never getting any public complaints on, on me for trying to extort somebody or anything like that. I never had a single case of that in my life, uh, in my career. And uh, people that do and people that have, uh, some of them are actually still active and some of them are actually in the high positions within the office that I used to work with. Um, it's just, it's a cultural thing, you know? Uh, in Mexico, if you know somebody, if, if, like if your uncle is the head of the police, it's feasible her, to, for him to get you into the police without you going through the academy. You know that's that's kind of the nature of the beast down there. When I graduated, I shook the hands of the you know a pro, a prosecutor. I shook the hands of the, uh, the head of uh, public safety, and uh, some of those people are you know under investigation for corrupt charges now, uh, and or are on the run. Uh, when, I, when I turned to my dad, dad's he like, hey, uh, never let anybody own you, was his piece of advice. Uh, never let anybody own you, like none of these people, never let anybody own you, and if you feel like it's time, just leave the job, it's fine, uh, Nobody's gonna. nobody's gonna judge you for it. Uh, but the whole never let anybody own you part was pretty interesting you know i got offered things like uh i got offered a car once i got offered a phone i got offered a um, a lot of money to look the other way or to call somebody and do something for them and all these times i was like i'm not your guy i i don't know i don't have access to that information uh thank you for the offer but it's just not i'm not who you want um I get nervous around these types of things, so please don't don't approach me with this type of stuff. Um, but the main thing is that I didn't want to get into anybody's pocket because I knew as soon as you take money for something, you're you're, you're owned. You know, they own you. You already, you already took that first taste of that cake. You already have pie on your face, and in some way, shape, or form, you're complicit. So all they need to do is blow the whistle on you, and you can get uh, picked up. Um, don't let anybody own you was the piece of advice he gave me, and that probably kept me alive. It's a Colombian term, but it's, you know, it's famous all over Mexico now, too. Plata o plomo. Every now and then you would get approached by a, a group of people, or a lawyer, or some sort of an agent, some sort of representation of the cartels. And they would offer you money. Uh, they would offer you plata o plomo. They said, hey, we're going to pay you some money so you look the other way, or you don't proceed with, with your current course of action, or you're going to get you know, killed. Uh, there's always a hand gesture sometimes that would accompany that, which is one finger pointed towards the sky and one picture, uh, finger pointed towards the ground. And say, what's it going to be? Plata o plomo? You know, basically, plata would be going to heaven and and Blomo would be going to hell, right? So you would see people kind of do that hand gesture in, in federal uh, courthouses at times when we were we were there being a witness and or you know kind of going over an arrest with a judge. Uh, it's like a discreet way they would kind of threaten us with that. Um, basically, it's a it's a it's it's a uh, it's a it's a fear propaganda tool that used like there's only two options. Plata o you know, basically getting shot and killed or getting paid off. Um, a lot of people go for plata. <laughs> a lot of people go for plata. And I remember going to the to some of the uh, uh, security meetings at some of the other uh, police precincts uh, offices that I would work in conjunction with, and see some of the guys with uh, you know a Hummer an H two Hummer showing up, and that's the shift leader, right? <laughs> And he's driving around in this brand new uh, Hummer Um, or seeing, you know, just these high-end vehicles uh, show up uh, without any license plates on them uh, to the office. I would look at it and I was like, wow, you know, (laughs) Uh, it wasn't my place to point it out. It wasn't my place to rat them out and it would be suicide if I did. Uh, But I just basically tried to eventually during doing the work I did, I eventually got into a position of leadership, um, and I would always find a way to extract myself from the presence or the uh, having to work with some of these people. Uh, so I was pretty lucky in that regard. The whole mindset of some people going into police work in Mexico is that they want to get rich off it, and people have gotten rich off it. It's an upside-down world. I, I, I just get a kick out of seeing the current... Uh, the current defund the police um, mentality in the U.S. and kind of want to scream at the uh, scream at some of these people to, to 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 realize how good they have it in in a lot of ways. Uh, if they want to see an actual corrupt and uh, uh, dangerous police uh, police uh, presence or force, I would I would grab any of them by the hand and kind of guide them through. Uh, a neighborhood in Mexico to see what an actual, you know, um, corrupt uh, police force could be and what a, an actual corrupt uh, police element in society could be. 90% of all murders in Mexico are unsolved. I mean, uh, the joke is you could kill somebody, uh, take a video of you doing it and leave it on the victim's chest until you won't get caught in Mexico.
0: Navigating a world of rampant corruption was just one of the more uniquely dangerous obstacles that came with Ed's new career. Another was the equipment, and perhaps even training, that he and his colleagues never received. But once again, Ed wound up discovering that there were valuable lessons to be learned, even in situations that seemed completely upside down. And those lessons not only helped him survive at the time, they're the lessons he uses most often to teach others now. Yeah, the the whole uh, minimalistic approach that I take to
1: things isn't uh, isn't uh, because that's what I wanted to do. That's because I didn't have a choice. I, I got a gun, two, two magazines for the pistol, and I got a rifle and two magazines for the rifle, and a bulletproof vest, a soft armor bulletproof vest that isn't capable of stopping any sort of rifle rounds. It's... It was Something made only to stop, uh, you know, handgun bullets. And uh, the first, uh, the first time we went into this, uh, like a cartel safe house, I was with the, uh, I was with uh, members of the military. They kicked down this door and kind of looking around this whole house. And um, one of the guys looked back at me and said, "Do you have any plates?" And I said, yeah, you have, have my armor on? Oh, no, he said, no, plate armor. I said, no. And then he reached down to the ground and picked one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, armor plates off the ground and, and just put it on me. And he said, how are you on magazines? And I said, well, I have two. Well, now you have six, right? He gave me this, uh, these six magazines that we found in this, you know, uh, armory out there that was hidden behind this uh, closet wall. I was basically augmenting my capabilities by with things that I would find out there. Um, we would make, uh, we would see some equipment being used by people that we were train with, and like uh, Faraday cage bags to put cell phones in so they wouldn't uh, put any signal out. And ba- I would basically, you know, make my own. I would uh, cobble and cobble together uh, the chest rigs with uh, pouches on to carry around things discreetly, uh, for a long time I carried an MP5 submachine gun with a skateboard backpack, which is something I show in a few classes, how to how to modify and how to carry things discreetly like that uh, for law enforcement. Uh, and all that experience comes from not having anything, basically. No Amazon Prime, uh, no latest and greatest tactical company coming up with something cool. Uh, it was a sewing machine. Some of the, some of the stuff my mom would actually sew. Some of the stuff for it. Um, it was a sewing machine, and it was uh, creativity. That's uh, that's how we would make things out there. And with, what we couldn't get, we would find and keep. Uh, that was like a weird part of the uh, the job back then, um, because with the, the supply chain from the government is horrible in Mexico. <laughs> they don't give you anything. They just assume you're going to
0: find what you need. One thing Ed could not prepare for were some of the atrocities he witnessed at countless crime scenes all across Mexico. He says the horrors happening now in the country where he was born are still largely unknown to the world outside.
1: I mean, El Lero. I got to see some of his work directly. Um, El Pozolero was a... a, uh, he was basically a, a body disposal specialist that worked for a time under the Ariano Phoenix Cartel's uh, organization and then went to work for a splinter group that uh, tried to gain control of Tijuana under a, a cartel head uh, they used to call El Teo uh, the three letters was his like a underworld name everybody had to have a nickname in Mexico <laughs> apparently and um, he would get rid of hundreds of bodies a week for the uh for some of these groups They would be dropped off uh he would buy all the components to make caustic soda a thing that he said he learned from an israeli specialist and it was actually brought in uh, by the by the uh tijuana cartel the ariano cartel to train some of their Sicarios. He, they, they, he said that a lot of uh, these guys would bring in specialists to train some of their sicarios and and some of their you know some of the people that work for their organization. So he would get you know bodies uh, dumped at his doorstep uh, by some of these cartel guys, and uh, you know just uh, in, uh, at an industrial level, he would get rid of hundreds of bodies a week or a month, right? Um, he actually went into a detailed explanation of how he would do it. And he says, and I've never, I've never had a cause to, uh, to suspect otherwise. He says that he never killed anybody; uh, that his only crime was getting rid of all these bodies, and he didn't really have a choice. Uh, he got paid. He said eighty bucks for each body, or something like that. Um, but basically, they would bring the bodies in. He would strip them down, put them in the caustic soda. And then he would dump these the caustic soda after whatever was left there into a sand grater, and every, all the small pieces that were left behind he would put into another vat, so they would you know melt, get melted down, or gather it all and throw it into the ocean, or, some, or throw it or bury it somewhere else, and then dump the uh, dump the remnants in a hole on, in a field somewhere. Uh, basically leaving nothing behind. He talks about hundreds of people. Uh, some people, some specialists around uh, the whole case said it was more in the in, in the realm of thousands. Um, so there's there's families out there still looking for their kids' uh, bodies, hoping that they're gonna get found in some sort of a grave site somewhere, some clandestine mass grave out there. Uh, which there are a lot <laughs> there are a lot around Mexico and there's just no hope for them. They're never gonna find them like they're they're never gonna get get that closure because all these bodies are you know, turned into liquid and they're buried in, you know there's he didn't mark his graves basically. There was a scene in his uh, the compound there where he, that he was found in that uh, it's always in the back of my mind there was a there was a little storage room with a bunch of shoes pants belts t-shirts jackets a lot of them obviously with the blood on them. Uh, it seemed like something out of Auschwitz you know it seemed like something out of the, uh, the like a Nazi uh, concentration camp where all the, there were people getting stripped uh, naked um, there's no cartel movie out there that dep- that depicts some of the that depicts some of the horrors that I've seen, and I know for a fact are still being done out there. You know, there's no, there's no. Uh, I, I don't think there's no popular cultural comparison between the Nazis and uh, the cartels, but as far as them eliminating uh, people at an industrial level. And trying to get rid of a whole generation of people—that's uh, something that happened in Tijuana. Uh, there's a, there's this whole there's whole uh, there's whole communities of young people that were basically wiped out. You know? um, it was uh, it was it was very dangerous to be young uh, during that time. Um, in the wrong place at the wrong time, anybody that was a military-aged male could get picked up and be confused with somebody else. And if they made a mistake about killing you, you know, 90% of all murders are never solved. So um, there was a lot of cases of even the military uh, shooting up a a car full of uh, university students and then to not get into trouble, they would dump rifles onto them and then say that they were cartel guys. You know, there was a lot of that happening as well. So, and no, no, no hands were clean. Uh, and nobody was free of uh, sin. Uh, and, you know, my mom's words kept uh, coming back to my mind. If you want to get involved in this story, Ed, realize you're going to be the villain
0: and not the hero. On the next episode of Alchemy of Violence, here's some of the tragedies Ed experienced over the course of his career sometimes with an occasional connection to the U.S. government. He was
1: driving out with his wife and his kid. Uh, they're, they're going to the movies, apparently. Two guys uh, stepped out of the corners uh, carrying FN57 pistols. Later on, those guns got licked back to uh, Fast and the Furious.
0: The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.